Are you looking to fine-tune? Whether for your business, your job, your team, or yourself, in each episode, we will be discussing different ideas and opinions using real-world examples to help you see opportunities, innovate, and succeed. Hi, it's Corby Fine, and welcome to Fine-Tune. When I started my career in the late 1990s, there was a fairly standard set of rules as to the employment options available to me. One, I could go get a job, the full-time job, one that generally required me to go into the same office day after day, dedicating at least 100% of my work time to that company. And in exchange, I was guaranteed a salary, some pretty good benefits, and the opportunity to maybe, just maybe retire after 40 years of consistent service. The second option was the contract. Namely, the same sort of full-time job, but with a limited time frame of duration. And not as many of the other benefits than, of course, the ability to be independent, to take the salary, thereby allowing anyone, really, myself included, to write things off as an independent. The challenge, if I thought about it, How do you manage the sales pipeline to ensure that when that contract was over, you had another one lined up? Something dramatic has changed between then and now. First of all, along came this thing called the gig economy. Did you know that more than one-third of U.S. and Canadian workers are somehow involved in the gig economy, which works out to a really large number, somewhere in the realm of 70 million people in North America? With the rise of Uber, Lyft, Etsy, Amazon, Freelancer, eBay, among many others, more and more workers are doing part-time work, side hustles, and joining this gig economy, as it's often called. For many, it's a stopgap for when you're between full-time jobs or can't find a new job after a layoff. Or sometimes you just need more flexibility than a traditional job can provide. So you go freelance, maybe string together a few jobs on a short-term contract basis. The gig economy offers a ton of flexibility, no matter what your situation. Now, technology has been one of the main enablers of this kind of work. Because the reality is, if you're armed with a smartphone, and you're situated somewhere near a Starbucks or an independent cafe that has pretty good free Wi-Fi and a power outlet, you know, that new office space we all like to say, you can pretty much just about work from anywhere. And it's not just gig economy workers that are taking advantage of that situation. Full-time employees will spend hours to days sitting in more public, outside-of-the-office environments doing the exact same thing, taking advantage of the Starbucks office. Today, the average job lasts somewhere between two and four years. And the short duration of jobs isn't necessarily a function of employees not wanting to be loyal to their employers. It's actually more that employers are no longer as loyal to their employees as they used to be. Think about it. When it comes time to save money, create efficiencies, one of the first things that happens is the cutting of high-cost seasoned executives 
and then hiring back lower-cost employees at director and below levels. The other thing that's happening is organizations are hiring more people to focus on projects without that long-term commitment. This is partly the new reality that we live in. As small and medium-sized businesses, or SMEs as we call them, now represent just under 90% of the total employment across Canada, they also are becoming hungry for talent, but often lack the revenue base to support having these highly qualified, experienced employees to work for them, especially at the leadership level. So along comes fractional employment. What is fractional employment, you ask? Well, the term fractional employment has actually been around for several years, and it seems to be emerging as a, a bit of a new and, and kind of cool model for employment, especially in and among the SME sector. Under the fractional employment model, an employee spends a certain but discrete amount of time that's carved out of each week with multiple employers. In its ideal form, it could be two days each with two different employers, plus that fifth day to spend with a third company. This would net out as a full work week for the employee. A key difference between fractional employment and part-time or contract work is that the fractional employment tends not to be project-based and represents a more ongoing relationship to each of the multiple employers. Hours tend to be more regular than part-time, at least days are. A fractional executive might devote, let's say, Monday and Tuesday to client A, Wednesday to client B, and so on. So the employer has a clear understanding of when they are available. Now, this seems pretty perfect, and the reality is it doesn't always work that way. Hours tend to be more regular than part-time, but is it really easy to say that an organization will wait for their next meeting on Tuesday when they've got things to do in between? Fractional employees generally also have to give up the health and dental benefits among some of the other social aspects of being in the office that they might receive as permanent employees. But in return, they have a lot more flexibility and control over their own working hours. For older workers coming from more traditional corporate cultures, it could be an opportunity to better realize a work-life balance. So why fractional work? What is it about this model that makes it appealing for a growing number of people at really all levels of organizations? Well, today, I have the luxury of having two seasoned executives who have recently made the transition from corporate full-time work to this new world of the fractional executive. So my first guest today is Rory Capern. Rory, uh, why don't you give uh, the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a, a Canadian tech and media guy who never left Toronto. Um, over the course of the last 10 years, I guess, I've been working in large international platform companies, uh, Microsoft, Google, and Twitter. Um, I was head of partnerships for Google and then ran Twitter here in Canada for a few years. Was most recently at Palmerex, worked with uh, Sam Sebastian and a few other folks that I've known for a really long time, uh, bringing the lessons of running these international platforms in Canada to a Canadian headquartered company to do the same thing. In, uh, in January of this year, I started my own company, uh, Rory Capern Advisory Services. It's not that inventive on the brand level, but um, my objective this, in this last chapter, the chapter that I'm currently in, is to answer the call of a number of scaling Canadian technology companies to help them grow effectively and apply what I've learned over the course of the last 
20 years or so to a sector that I'm deeply passionate about across multiple companies at once. It's a really exciting run. And our other guest today is Chris Hodgson. Chris, why don't you give your background as well? Uh, so I've, uh, I've spent about 25 years, I guess, proudly speaking as a business person in the tech industry. So originally was an engineer uh, and then became an entrepreneur myself uh, and uh, more recently an executive at large companies. And so have a broad mix of experience across a whole bunch of different industries, actually. I spent 12 years in the UK originally uh, at Accenture, doing strategy consulting for telcos in Europe. I spent a few years at an IT company, helping turn around their business in France, and then uh, set up my own business, which is an online retail loyalty business, uh, working closely with uh, financial services companies and retailers in Europe. Uh, and then uh, moved back to Canada uh, and uh, worked for Google, where Roy and I worked together, uh, leading the uh, retail tech and telco businesses in Canada. Uh, and part of uh, the leadership team that built out Google Canada uh, over the last six or seven years. And then uh, left there to join RBC, built out uh, RBC Ventures, which is an internal corporate incubator, uh, working with startups. And always after being an entrepreneur, I think once you're an entrepreneur, you always have a lot of passion for small businesses and, and fast growth businesses. And so I've, uh, I've always been a fan and, and left uh, RBC about a year ago to start to work with uh, those companies uh, I've done sort of an entrepreneur in residence role, but also worked directly with uh, tech companies to help them understand business, help them build out their sales teams, help them build out their marketing strategy, partnerships, and also to raise capital. You both have some really exciting backgrounds and, and some commonality that I, I think I hear with regards to having worked in large organizations with global perspective and then this transition into this new fractional career. So maybe you can talk to me a little bit about what were the factors that, that helped you both realize that this was the path to go forward? Because there, there do seem uh, to be some similarities between the two of you. Was it uh, a set of different push factors from those large organizations that made you say, hey, maybe I've had enough? Was it the pull factor from seeing the excitement in these you know, entrepreneurial startup environments? Maybe it was a combination of both. Uh, Rory, why don't we start with you? Sure. I, to answer the question directly, I think a lot of it was pull for me. But when I look back over my own career, one of the trends that emerges pretty visibly is that I love playing in this pocket of growth from you know, low tens of employees to hundreds and then thousands. So the time that Chris and I spent together at Google was incredibly formative to me. I, we were both in very early in the Toronto office and watched the place absolutely explode in the context of its revenue opportunity, its market opportunity, and certainly from a scaling of employees point of view. That experience was extremely important to me, first of all, because I loved it, and I just really enjoyed the nature of work at that stage of the company. Now, Google is special for a whole bunch of reasons, but um, it was a great experience. Then I went to Twitter and kind of reset the clock again. I was the 35th employee in the Twitter office in, in Toronto when I took it on. And we grew, again, uh, not quite as meteorically as Google, but at a different company, but still, we went from 35 to somewhere in the 100 range. So that size of company is a very special time. Um, it's an opportunity as a general manager or a managing director, in the case of Twitter, to look across all the different functions of business, which I really enjoy, with a strong focus on revenue growth for a you know, Canadian headquarter of an international company. That talks a lot about the size of organization. What about the element of the, the sort of fractionality and the multiple organizations at the same time? Yeah, so I guess a few things. Before I, I just leave the other, the other point, most of the companies that I'm working with now are in that range, right? They're in that smaller range. And that was a big draw for why I wanted to 
and work, set up my own business there. In terms of multiple focuses, and I'm just going to watch the smile on Chris's face broaden, but I've always been broad, right? So I've, in my partnerships function at Google, I was across like six businesses. Um, at Twitter, I was across, you know, multiple different aspects of Twitter's business. And then when I went to Palmerx, I did the same thing, right? So my sort of business development background has had me focused across a number of different business units, typically for a very, very long time. I started off as a strategy consultant with the Boston Consulting Group. I think it sort of stuck there, this notion of being able to think across multiple different businesses at once. I love doing it. Uh, it's also an opportunity to learn a ton really quickly, right? So when you're working in different industries and different functions, the ability to just round out as a practitioner from a business perspective is pretty special. Yeah, interesting. I heard that consultant word again, which Chris mentioned in his introduction. So Chris, how about over to you? Um, when you think about some of the push and pull factors into this fractional workspace, uh, what, what is it for you that that's really drawn you in? Yeah, some of it uh, is similar to Rory. I mean, I, I started as an engineer. Um, and I think when I got exposed at Accenture during the dot-com boom, I got exposed to uh, smaller businesses. And the engineer in me loved the fact that you could, instead of making widgets, you could make companies. Um, and so I, I really latched onto that. And I think it's how it got me to be an entrepreneur and set up my own business. And since then, um, you know, both at Google and at RBC, the, the idea of building out businesses, I find quite, um, it's quite an exciting time uh, as Rory did. Uh, and I think really, I started to realize in my career, as I worked at larger companies, that I, I, there were things about it that just didn't suit me. Um, you know, I've got experience at, at SO, at Accenture, at Google, at RBC. So I've got experience in big companies, but I started to realize when you work at a small company or you set up a small team, uh, the ability to get things done quickly, the ability to have impact really are quite compelling for me. Um, and you, you surround yourself with people who often are owners of the business and are so passionate about what they're doing because of that, that I really find it's a, it's a very dynamic, very interesting area to work in. Probably the biggest draw of this work is, are the entrepreneurs and the founders themselves, right? So this is a magic time for most of the companies that I'm involved with and the people are incredibly high caliber. So that, that notion of impact is always kind of top of the list for me, but to be able to have that impact is in my experience with large companies, highly correlated to the caliber and the energy level of those who are running the business. And this is a sweet spot for me. So I get to work with like five CEOs and, and their founding teams who are really driven, have a real vision for what they're trying to do and prepared to work really hard to make it happen. And I just love that environment. Yeah, I was going to actually follow up on that word impact, which I think is really meaningful. And, I, and I'll tie it to a broader question, which is when you think about the ability to work with different organizations in a fractional model. And, and I do want to come back to the, the sort of day in the life. How do you find the, the ability to measure impact when you're not necessarily spending 100% of your time with that organization and seeing all of the things that they're doing day to day? You're in, you're out, you're onto something else, you're back. Maybe describe to me a little bit about, about how impact is actually seen and measured. Chris, why don't you just come back to that word? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you don't realize... Um, after 20 or 25 years and working in it, you know, I've worked across a whole bunch of different industries and a bunch of different companies, and I tend to get bored after four or five years I've found in my career. And, and I sort of jump and go and do something new. And I think what I love about the fractional nature of it is you get exposed at the same time to five or six or seven different companies, all with doing completely different things in many cases. 
And when I think about the impact you can have on them, you, you sometimes don't realize, you know, something that seems uh, to make a lot of sense to you and is just obvious isn't always obvious to an earlier stage business, right? They haven't been through some of the same hurdles. The owners may be, uh, you know, 10 years into their career, not 25 years. So they haven't learned quite the same things. So even when you think of something like, uh, I, had a, I had a call the other day with one of the companies I work with about recruiting and they were, you know, it seems mundane, but we ended up in a conversation around job titles. And I, we started to go down a route about how do you actually do career ladders? You know, they're, they're a 20 person company, but they have 10 million in revenue, but they don't even understand the idea of, uh, you know, salary bands and promotions into salary bands and how to, how to think about that relative to career t job titles and stuff. And, and so just exposing them to that, you can instantly see how their eyes, you know, the, 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 the light bulb goes off and they go, okay, we understand that would be a lot of sense. You know, I don't want to impose bureaucracy into an organization like that, but you can expose them very quickly to something that, that perhaps they haven't come across. So for the, uh, for the engineer who loves diversity playing HR manager, I can see <laughs> the appeal there. Um, Rory, how about you? Uh, how, how have you seen sort of the, the notion of impact in, in what you're doing? So this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about and really even in advance of launching. Um, having come from a consulting career and worked with a number of consultants, I really wanted to stay away from that dynamic. Right? I didn't want to come in and wave my hands and you know, explain to people what I thought and then leave. Um, so I have, I have taken two different approaches with, depending on the nature of the need of the companies that I'm working with. On the one hand, I'll call it sort of CEO whisperer, kind of working with the CEO of the company to structure things and make decisions. But from an impact perspective, my, my own hurdle is on um, articulating how, uh, how the business will change and how we can actually measure that, right? So in some cases, it's quality of decisions. In examples like Chris mentions, when it's hiring, it's the quality of the hire and the retention of those people and how happy we are with the result of having landed people onto the team. Even in areas where it's soft, I've really tried to, you know, put some boxes around how I can measure the impact that I'm having. On the other side, I've taken on a fractional chief revenue officer role in a number of cases, and that's a lot easier, right? It's about putting points on the board and actually driving results from a sales and revenue growth perspective. Um, challenging you know, in the context of fractional work, because to your earlier point, you're not in the business every day, but, you know, the nature of, of my own engagement, I've structured so that we can be very clear about what benefit accrues based on the work that I'm doing. No, that's great. So are you guys finding that as you're doing this type of work and splitting your time and your focus and your energy amongst these different organizations, that the leadership and the teams that you're working with, where you've been brought in, are they treating you like full members of the team? Are they thinking about you as a contract consultant, you know, gun for hire, or are they thinking about you as someone that's even though physically not always there, someone that can be leveraged with those key tough questions and decisions at any given time. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe Rory, why don't you start? Sure. I mean, what I would tell you is it's probably the very first and the very last of that list that you just gave. Um, the I've been really lucky, so I'm working with uh, with five different businesses right now in slightly different ways, but all of them, I think I can say with confidence, treat me as if I'm an executive team member for the most part, if not, you know, a, a board member, even in some cases. So the, the relationship is definitely formalized in that context, right? I'm not drifting in and out of the business. I've got specific things that I need to do and I'm delivering them. I would say there's two different contexts though. In some cases I've taken individual objectives and I'm just sort of hammering them out, right? I've got things that I need to deliver and I'm doing that. In others, I'm working through founding teams. 
So the founders are asking for help, be it, you know, marketing, HR, strategy, you know, all the different elements of the business where I'm working through them, but we work very, very closely together. So one of the things that I think we're probably going to get to in a minute is, in my view, the biggest challenge of this business as a fractional executive is time and how you sort of efficiently use hours in the day so that you're not screwing across too many things at once. It's a real challenge. But I've managed to do it in such a way as to drive a tangible result either directly or through the founding partner that I'm working with on the executive team to you know, have a very formalized role in the company. And Chris, how about you? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think there's a, I think there's a wide variety uh, depending upon what their needs are and depending upon uh, the value you're delivering to the business. Uh, ultimately, I've got some clients I work with where they do see me. I think as a as a hired gun, as you as you mentioned, you know, here's so here's an executive we can bring in when we need someone to advise on certain things. We couldn't afford someone like this on a full time basis, but we can bring him in to help us with things as as we need them. And in other cases, I've got clients I work with where I'm invited to the Christmas party. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the team. I'm, I'm, I know all of the employees, um, all the executives and, uh, and, uh, I really get along well with them and they just, you know, reach out to me when, when they need help with stuff. So I think, I think it depends upon what their needs are, uh, in, in terms of what the relationship works for them and for us. So when you think about the benefits of this kind of work, be it for the organizations, uh, yourself, your family, uh, your lifestyle, what is it that's really like screaming out to you saying, wow, this was the right decision and look at all the things that I'm able to accomplish and that I'm happy about that might be a bit different from the traditional nine to five, or as we say now, 12 to 12, because uh, we're all living at home and unable to differentiate work from, from personal anymore. What, what are those things that have really stood out as those positives? Rory? So for me, it's number one is impact. Now we keep coming back to this word, but I would tell you that over the course of the last 20 years of a career spent mostly in large companies, where I have chased professionally and become frustrated is in the ability to get things done at the pace that they need to be done, right? The market doesn't wait for companies to do things. The market just acts on its own. Working in this regard across, you know, five different businesses that are all chosen or you know we chose each other because of this commonality of orientation i'm finding that i'm getting a lot done in a very protracted period of time or a very short period of time um that's the first thing i think the other piece too is i have and i think chris mentioned this as well in his case i'm very entrepreneurially driven to begin with and the ability to structure my own time my own life you know focus the things that i'm interested in have a little bit more authorship over the work that i'm doing even though I've managed to have, you know, sit in some relatively senior roles, there's always this sort of list of stuff that you have to do because you have to do it. In this work, you can be a little pickier with the nature of the work that you take on. And that for me is driving a quality of life effect that I didn't see coming. I thought I was going to be, you know, buried for the first six to 12 months, just kind of flying through space. And, and actually, by virtue of this more strategic relationship and conversation I'm having with my my clients, my partners, um, I'm able to pick and choose a lot more than I have been able to in the past. And I, I really quite love that. Chris, I'm going to go the opposite way to you. When you think about some of the pitfalls or detriments or maybe some negative outcomes of taking on this kind of a career path, what stands out to you as some of the things that people should watch out for as they potentially think about it as well? 
Yeah, I mean, there there are definitely lessons, to be honest. And I learned I've learned a lot over the last year and a half since I've been doing this. Um, you know, I originally started with this notion that I want to set up my own business again, and I actually was didn't I specifically didn't want to be a consultant and advisor. Um, I was pushing against it because the entrepreneur in me was looking at, you know, how do you build a business? Well, you need something that's scalable and being an advisor is not scalable. There are only so many hours in the day and only so much you can charge. And so I have to say, I fought it for a good four to six months and I was doing it on the side as a way to, uh, earn some income and to, to get through to setting up my own business. And I started to realize, actually, I'm really enjoying this. Um, and, uh, and so that was the first insight for me. What I, I enjoyed many of the same things that Rory said, but you know, I, I, I did think this isn't a scalable thing that I want to do uh, forever because um, well, I just didn't think it was that scalable and that that exciting. Um, but actually, now that I've done it, you know, what's exciting is working with a variety of companies, and and as Rory said, having the choice to choose who you work with. Right? When you start with a company, I, so many friends now who've worked with large companies. Um, and I was just talking to a family member yesterday who's at a, at a large company. He started two months ago and he's hating it. He doesn't like his job. He doesn't like his boss. He doesn't like the culture. And, and he feels he's been sold something by a headhunter that's not the reality of what he's doing. And now he's trapped in it. And, and I think the ability to sort of turn down clients that you don't want to work with because you don't like them or you don't like their business is quite powerful. I do think when it comes to the, the learnings, what's also important is understanding there's a, there's a material shift in the commercials um, if you charge hourly or you charge daily. Uh, and I think it seems like a, a small point, but it's actually quite, a, um, quite an important one. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a lawyer uh, that charges every six minutes, you, you don't realize, there's a reason for that, right? You don't realize how much of your day is spent doing little three minute or six minute long things. And if you just charge a client for an hour on an hourly basis, I'll just work the number of hours you hire me. You typically don't end up charging them for the 15 small little things you do that took six minutes. And so I think one of my lessons earlier on is I started to work with clients just, you know, hey, just I'll charge you an hourly rate. Um, we'll set up, you know, an hour a week. What I didn't realize is I was having an hour of call with them every week, but also spending three hours that I wasn't charging them outside of that call. And they weren't expecting me because they just thought it was an hour. So so it's it's difficult to keep track of all those small things. So this idea of shifting that mentality, and, and Rory was quite good at this, shifting that mentality to say, look, I actually can do more with you and I can have a bigger impact. Like a, an hour a week is not enough for me to actually understand your business, have an impact on your business. A day a week, I can actually get into the weeds. I can actually help you solve some of the problems. It's just just me parachuting in from above and throwing some ideas at you with sort of this broad idea of what you're doing as a business. I actually know the players. I know the culture. I know some of the challenges you're having and I can actually have more impact. And it also allows you to to avoid some of those challenges with tracking, you know, every six minute increments, as Rory said, the, the time commitment's difficult to, to manage. Chris, that's a really good point. And it brings me to a, a pretty fundamental question that I think uh, people are going to want to know. 
So Rory, talk to me, day in the life, when you think about what Chris just described with regards to having the ability to have the day committed as opposed to the one hour call and all the benefits that that opens up downstream, how do you manage your day knowing that today you're with company X, tomorrow you're with company Y and so on? Maybe talk a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, well, I, as much as I appreciate the compliment from Chris, I have no great solutions for this yet. What I would tell you is I structured my work that way because I felt like I was going to need eight hours a week to be able to have the impact for sure. When I first started, you know, remember I'm three months or four months in here. So like, don't want to come across as the all-knowing Swami of fractional executive work. But the, um, the idea was that I would exactly as you just sort of queued up. Like Monday is for this client, Tuesday is for that client. Within about a day and a half, that was gone. And the reason is that business doesn't wait for your Tuesday, right? Like there are key meetings, there are issues that have to be dealt with, there are emails flying across that you start playing in the pocket of these, with these companies in the context of what they're dealing with. And when you're needed, you're needed. So, you know, my commitments are the amount of time in a week that I'll give to a client or provide for a client is uh, a day. What I would tell you is they're all getting a hell of a deal on that metric. <laughs> it's a lot more than eight hours a week. But that's okay, right? I mean, the idea is to try and get comfortable with the notion that there's value for, you know, dollars being exchanged. I think that's been very much the case. But this is the pain point of this business, right? So if you are a highly structured individual who needs to know exactly what they're going to do at every hour of the day, I actually got pretty good at that while I was working in a large company. Like structuring my time became a really important piece of my work. Um, I've had to shift right out of that. Right now I'm responding to the needs of, you know, five different businesses. As things come up, there's a need to be able to structure the companies so that you're not constantly dealing in the, you know, the chafe or the, the sort of the wash of all the work that comes from these businesses. But you also can't tell them that, sorry, it's Tuesday and I can't help you today because today belongs to another client. So I'm still very much trying to figure all that out. What I would tell you is what was supposed to have been five days of work is probably looking more like 10 a week in the context of total hours right now, especially as I kind of get better at this. But um, I definitely love it and wouldn't trade it. I, I think one thing to keep in mind as part of that is also um, you need to be very, you need to have a very open conversation with the clients about that, right? Because you can end up in a situation, as Roy said, where, uh, and, and it's fine over a short period where you're working more hours than what you're, you're charging them or what you agreed with them. But over the long term, that's not going to work out well if you start to, uh, you know, uh, get frustrated by the situation. I think you need to have a very open conversation with them and, and a relationship where you can have that conversation either where, you know, where they can be comfortable coming to you saying, Hey, you know, you, with an employee, they would be very easy for them to say, Hey, you sort of screwed up here as part of your performance review, or you really hit it out of the park and they need to be able to do that to you as an advisor. And you need to be able to go to them and say, Hey, you know, I, uh, last month was pretty onerous. Uh, I'm happy to do that, but we should just keep monitoring it and make sure it's not going to be like that for, for too long because, uh, you know, I can't keep up that pace or we'll have to sort of renegotiate how we figure things out, but do it in a very respectful way where you have that kind of dynamic. Well, Corby, what I would also maybe add to that too, is that in the beginning, I think I was a lot more vigilant of the hours put in my clients work. Right? So I was like logging everything and like making sure that I actually the longer we work together and i think the more successful the relationship the more they're focused on the output and not on the input right but that it takes time to deliver that kind of trust and, and actually to be able to drive those kinds of results for the, for the money that's being spent yeah i agree with that so i hear i hear 
a really interesting tip there that I think applies not just to this kind of work, but in general. Try and set the expectations to focus on the output and not the input of how you get there. And I think that works regardless of whether you're a nine to five or whether you're a fractional executive, uh, irrelevant. Uh, Chris, coming back to something you said, you talked about your friend being, quote, stuck uh, in the corporate gig that maybe he or she wasn't so happy with. So I'm going to ask the blunt question. As, as you two work with a lot of these organizations, uh, once you get to know them and you're, you're sort of in, ingrained in, in the one out of the day-to-day work uh, that, that you can do, have you come across organizations that, you know, a month, two, three months into the relationship, you've just said to yourself, wow, there's not much I can do here to help. It's really not my area. And how do you bridge that conversation if you have, uh, basically, have you been, quote, stuck feeling like you're sort of in a situation that isn't really for you? Uh, so I haven't directly, although I've, <clears throat> I've sort of been. And I think you start to, um, I think it starts to be realized on both sides, right? Both they start to question, hey, is the output here really adding the value that we need it to? And you're starting to say, hey, I don't know if I can add that value. And I think it starts to get recognized on both sides. Um, I have to say, though, I've found uh, the opposite to be the case so far. There have been a couple of clients I have now that when I originally started to talk to them, um, I thought, I don't know if I can help these people. Like this is Their business is a completely different area. I don't know much about it. I'm not sure if this is core to what I'm doing. And I started to do a little bit of work with them and I started to realize, actually, no, there are some material things that I could be helping them with that, that they just haven't figured out yet that I've seen before that they can learn from me. Um, so I, I've actually found the reverse happens more so far anyway. To add to that a little bit, I, I think in my case, the target, the, the clients that I wanted to work with were scaling technology companies, which means, you know, in varying degrees, the barn's on fire all the time, right? There's just a lot of stuff that you have to do for a company that's scaling. And so I was intentionally looking for these opportunities where, you know, what they needed was really broad and there was probably going to be a lot of use for a lot of the experience that I could bring. And that's been mostly true so far. Um, so a lot of this, I think, comes back to, uh, you know, what the stage of the company is. I think in, in engagements where you're working with much more mature businesses, there probably are dead ends where you can't do as much. But this is what I love about this sort of pocket of the market that I've gotten this much exposure to over the last little while is, you know, they're dealing with a light speed, fast company trying to move as quickly and as agilely as they can. And there are a million decisions to make all the time. So a lot of it depends on the stage of the company and, and the, I guess the mindset of the management team. But I haven't hit a dead end yet. Yeah, I think that stage of the company is actually quite important. It took me a while to narrow in on where I felt I could add the most value. Um, I had a lot of requests from very, very early stage businesses, um, just based upon where my network was and the people I knew. Um, and I started to realize that actually, you know, in many cases they're focused on the product and, and the technology, and they maybe haven't even launched a product yet. And they're trying to figure out how to launch a product. Um, whereas my, and, and I can add some value there, but the real value is the company that's already got a product, it's already got some customers trying to figure out how do you build a sales team? How do we get marketing engaged and optimized? How do we, how do we scale this up in an effective way? And so I figured out my sweet spot is sort of, you know, 1 million, 10 to 10 million revenue business that's trying to get to 50 to hundred million. But for many people as a fractional executive, maybe it's the hundred million business that's trying to get to a billion. That's where they add the real value. Um, you, you sort of really need to focus in on, on that. 
that's a that's a really great point. And I think depending on who you are and who the organizations are, it's just as much of a dance to determine the fit as you would go through a general recruiting process to take a full-time executive role in any organization. The added complexity is you're doing it three, four, or five times within a short time frame. Uh, but I could definitely see from from this conversation, you know, when when I talked earlier in, in my preamble about the differences between on one end of the spectrum, the full-time, you know, standard uh, employment role that most of us are used to. On the other end, the contractor consultancy, which has a sort of beginning and an end date and, and a bunch of work in between, but you kind of know it's going. And then this new sweet spot down the middle, which is still new and evolving. I mean, to both of your points, you're still trying to figure out some of the nuances of your day-to-day of how to pick your your specialty areas of whether you can actually add value or not to the organization. Are there are there things that you find you're missing from the way you used to work? You know, let's take Google for example. Let's add a provocative question. If Google called you up today and said, "Hey, the head of Canada roles open. Would you drop what you're doing and go take that function?" <laughs> that that's an open question, that's guys. A good question. You, you, you determine it. Look, that, that's a pretty special role, right? So Google calls you and they want you to run the country. Canada, in, in the context of Google's world, is a very plum assignment. And so you'd be a little nuts not to take the call, at least. At the same time, I, I mean it when I say it, I would be leaving a ton of very valuable relationships and work behind. So it would make it very, very difficult. I also think one of the things that I'm, I'll kind of go back to what I said earlier. What I'm really enjoying right now is the ability to call a shot serially. Right. So what do you want to work on next? What's the thing that's going to drive the most impact and have lots of authorship over that? Um, not speaking to Google directly, but in many large company senior roles, there's a lot of encumbrance around what you can and can't do. And I think that's what I would probably feel the most going back into a large organization is the ability to like actually do the things that you want to be able to do at the speed that you want to do. Them. I think um, I think for me, it would come down to to the being part of a team, um, you know, we're, we're part of the executive team and helping these businesses, but it is a bit different. The dynamics are a bit different. You know, when I've been in at Google or, or, or RBC or Accenture or other organizations, you know, there's something inherently great about being part of that team where you feel you're all in it together. Um, and I don't have quite that same feeling, right? You still feel part of the team, but it's not quite the same feeling. Um, so I think if you're if you're someone who can't sort of live without the team and and uh, can't operate somewhat independently, I think you'll you'll miss that a lot. I, I certainly don't miss uh, the number of unproductive meetings that I had <laughs> at large companies. Um, uh, you know, the the meeting for the sake of communicating rather than actually making decisions and getting stuff done. I'd say ninety five percent of the meetings I have now are. For, to deal with specific decisions and just getting stuff done. And that's far more, uh, far more compelling for me. You know, one of the observations that I'd also share is that I find myself deliberately going, well, when I could, going to client offices for that reason. I mean, Google had a killer office, but most of the experience that I've had with some of these larger companies have involved these amazing spaces where you gather with very smart people on a very regular basis to jam, right? And whether it's Productive or unproductive time is sort of a conversation for another day, but it's it's valuable from a social perspective. And in a world where I could be working remotely all the time, I find myself in client offices as much as possible to get that sense of connection. 
for sure. So that, that's another aspect of this that I think you got to be ready for. It can be it can be isolating from a social perspective. Yeah, that's really great. So let me just throw the last question at both of you, uh, and maybe uh, maybe we'll go right back to Rory. When when you just think about you know a friend, a neighbor, a coworker who says to you, "Hey, I really love what you're doing. It's inspiring me to try and do the same thing." What are the two or three really solid pieces of of support that you would want to give them of of those tips that say, "Here's how you start down this path." Sure, it's actually not that different from what I would give to anybody about their career in general, right? I mean, rule one is know yourself, understand where you can add value, what strengths you bring to the table and how that sort of matches to the needs of a client and spend a lot of time on that upfront. If you don't get that right, you have a mismatch and a sort of a dead end right away, but it's also not the most productive use of time and probably exacerbates a lot of the issues that we've seen as sort of negatives. The second thing is go for it. I mean, my view is what's so cool about this market that I've kind of, you know, backed my way into is that there's a lot of authorship here. So one person's definition of fractional executiveship is not, doesn't hold for everybody. And the ability to really try and put a business together that represents the best of who you are and the best of the opportunity to have a, a real impact while also running your own company and you know, enjoying the financial success that comes from that. Uh, is very liberating and I think solves for a lot of the frustration points that many people deal with in their whatever large corporate careers that, that they have options for. And so, yeah, I guess those two things. One, know yourself and two, you know, take the step if you think you want to do it. And Chris, how about you? Yeah, I, th- I agree with those completely. I, I think the other thing I'd add is perhaps um, have a have a realistic look at your network and the ways in which you can reach out to those clients uh, and try to understand how am I going to, you, you don't need a uh, hundred of them, right? You don't even need 10 of them. You need three or four or five of them, but how am I going to, uh, how am I going to open the first clients and have those three or four to begin with? And quite often, if you haven't done this before, it's going to be your f- friendly uh, network friendly connections who are actually willing to take a risk with you and bring you on on this basis. Uh, it's going to be harder if it's if it's a cold call to someone you don't know. And so try to take a, a realistic look at, at your network and who potentially could be a client uh, or your initial clients. That's that's really good advice. Um, I heard a lot of strong things today. I think some takeaways from my perspective. One. Uh, a line that Chris, you used earlier, the the ability to know that you're helping build businesses versus widgets is is one of the draw factors into this kind of work. You're helping people build their businesses as opposed to to taking it on yourself. That was really strong. the The whole concept of setting the expectations with the client up front in terms of focusing on the output as opposed to the input. So don't worry so much about as uh, as Rory says, documenting the 10 minute phone call that your lawyer might do. And as Chris says, uh, you know, it's more about focusing on what you're going to deliver at the end of the day. So don't worry about how I get there. Just trust that I'm going to help you get there. That's really key. And I think uh, applies not just to this kind of work, but in general. And I think at the other, the other key point is make sure you understand if you're going to be able to add value to the company based on the stage that they are at. So uh, I think Chris, you, you said it well, there might be people out there who have seasoned executive experience in very large multi-billion dollar corporations. Maybe it's not best for them to start right at the bottom with an organization that's pre-product or pre-revenue. 
uh, find your sweet spot, take advantage of the skills and knowledge you have, and then adapt it. And then finally, in those key points at the end, I think that last point was really, really critical. Uh, the combination of, of Rory saying, know yourself, you know, understand what you can bring to the table. But Chris's comment around, and then take a look at your network and see where that might match up. So all of those things together, I think, are, are really good. So I want to thank you both for spending the time with me this morning. I know there's a, a ton of things here that our listeners will will take away. And uh, knowing you both personally, knowing the value that you've brought to your your previous careers and organizations, uh, I can't wait to see what happens with the smaller, more nimble startups that you're working with now. I'm sure we will all be customers of many of them at one point in the near future. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, you know, as we say nowadays, stay safe and uh, enjoy enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks a lot, Corby. Thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Fine Tune. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me on Twitter at CFine, through LinkedIn at CorbyFine, or visit my website, CorbyFine.com. Fine Tune is produced by me, Corby Fine. Thanks for listening.